Thank you guys so much. I love you guys. I don't want to distract. Really, we're here for Jesus, not for any person. <laughs> this makes it real awkward, but I, I just want to, I want to take a moment and tell you how amazingly loved my family has felt through this. And, you know, there are people going through much harder things than we have walked through. And we have been overwhelmed with, with prayers, with cards, with calls, with texts, with messages, with meals that have made our boys say, hey, can we get a meal every night? Um, we have just been overwhelmed, and I'm reminded how great of a church that we have. And just to, to give a little highlight, some of you are like, hey, why did everybody respond that way? It is kind of awkward. We don't do that every week, trust me. Um, uh, I've been battling since December some stomach issues, thinking I was battling just a normal flu bug and, that I was just kind of carrying around. And, um, and at, on January 10th, I had a horrible night's sleep and a severe pain, and so I went to the ER and, and uh, found out that I had what is called a mesenteric blood clot. And I had multiple, and they were in the mesenteric region. What that is is uh, the main arteries and veins that flow to the intestines, to the pancreas, to the bowel, to the stomach. And so, uh, obviously, when that happens, a pretty dangerous thing. They transported me to Ohio State University Hospital, and there, I had a doctor say to me, Dave, we, we, don't, we don't see this in anybody your age. Uh, this is usually found in people that are 70 or 80 when things begin to deteriorate. This is a very rare blood clot, and so, uh, and dangerous one at that. It's obviously closer to the heart and those type of things, and so uh, they were very concerned. Now, I didn't know how to feel about that when you hear, we don't see this in your age, I'm 41, uh, made me feel really old. And, uh, and so I began a journey. Uh, I feel much better than I did. I'm not 100%, but I feel much better than I did. Really, the journey now is figuring out where this come, came from. And, and what's interesting is this type of blood cut always has a cause. It always connects to something. And so that's the mystery. I don't carry anything that most people would carry that indicate this type of blood clot. And so I've got some great doctors. I have tests scheduled all the way through April. Some of that is because my body needs to calm down. My pancreas needs to stop being swollen. And uh, there's a lot of things I don't understand happening in here. And so uh, I've got a lot, uh, a lot of roads ahead. I go every, every few days for tests and, and blood checkups and these type of things. So a great journey. I know some of you are walking through way more difficult things than I am. And I just want to say I appreciate you. I've thought of many of people in our church that have endured greatly. So thank you for your love for my family. Thank you for your example of endurance. Thank you for your patience with me. Now, I'm thankful for the team. Uh, when, in January 11th, I was planning to preach that weekend. Uh, thankfully, we have a great teaching team. We meet every week, and we plan out the messages. Uh, we do some training, talk about what does it look like to preach and teach the Word of God. Uh, we walk through series in the future. And so I, I give a call, and uh, Pastor Jesse, who was able to take the notes that we had prepared together, and he got up here and preached a fantastic sermon on a short notice. And then last week, Pastor Mike jumping right in saying, hey, I, I got this to preach on serving. Again, I so appreciate our team here. Um, in some ways, I, I could disappear and our church would be just fine. And that is so, so, I'm so proud of that. And yet, I'm scared of that at the same time. Uh, so you really don't need me, but I'm thankful to be here anyway today. It is a treat. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, you don't have a Bible. There's one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 875, Luke chapter 16. Uh, we're in a series called Uncommitted. And the reason for that is because... Whenever you commit to something, there's always something you have to uncommit from first. Think about this, in anything. Everybody, anybody here married? When you commit to be married to someone, you're uncommitting from all the single people you could have. Like I know when I committed to marry Allison, I left a lineup of ladies behind. <laughs> when Allison committed to me, there were guys chasing her. 
and we had to uncommit. Uh, when you have children, there's some uncommitment that you have to do. If you change your job, you've got to uncommit to commit to something else. By the way, this is true spiritually as well. When you commit your life to Christ, there are things that we detach from in order to live out that commitment for Christ. We detach from the world. We detach from self-righteousness. We attach, detach from the reality that we think we can solve our life issue. And so we turn to Christ in faith and say, God, I need you. I need your salvation. So even the spiritual journey is a lifelong journey of uncommitment. Uncommitting from ourselves so that we commit more to Christ. So we've been talking about that. Being uncommitted to self to live for Christ. Being uncommitted to things that hinder us from serving God and his body. This morning we're going to look at a different topic as we close this series. I'm excited about our next series, by the way. We're going to be kicking off next week a series on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. We're real excited about that. Some honest teaching from Jesus about life, kingdom living. We're excited to kick off that series. Uh, but we're going to end this series by talking about a subject that, that makes us a little nervous. I remember back in 1990, I was a freshman in high school, just started being a freshman in high school in 1990. And uh, I remember what came out. I played multiple sports. I, I, I played soccer, then I played basketball. Baseball was my main sport. Um, but I remember as a freshman, and I, you know, I wanted to be on the basketball team, and so I remember going to my mom and saying, Mom, here's what I need. Basketball season's coming up, and the new Air Jordans 5s came out in 1990. Now, for some of you, might say, what does that matter? Air Jordan 5s were like the best shoes ever because Michael Jordan had won multiple championships. He had been multiple player of the year. I, I mean, now he was a well-known commodity, and that was the year where these sneakers kind of took off. He, there were the one through fours, but then the fives came out, and it just so happened they came out when I was a freshman getting ready to play basketball in high school. So I was like, Mom, I need to get me some Air Jordan 5s. They were 125 bucks, by the way, which even that day was a lot of money. That was even more money than today. But, but what's interesting, and if you've heard my story, you know, I grew up very simply. Uh, my dad died when I was eight. I grew up in a row house in the city. I, I, was, I grew up in the hood. It was called the West End. We flashed the West Side sign all the time. It's true. You go to my, go to my hood and you go like that. Everybody goes back like that. If you don't do that, we take you out. <laughs> That's that simple. And so I grew up in a row house in the city, in the hood, in a city much like Mansfield. And so, uh, you know, others were getting these shoes. And so I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, I, don't, I know we don't have a lot, but I need these shoes. And I remember my mom, in all honesty, looking at me as if it was yesterday. She looked me in the eyes and she said, Davy, that's what she called me, Davy, can I tell you the honest truth? Those shoes are not going to make you a better basketball player. Those shoes aren't even going to look that great on you. She said that. She's like, you don't need those shoes. We can't afford those shoes. I remember being frustrated. Now, in my freshman 14-year-old mind, here's what came up. What came up in my mind was that every other week in church, we would sit together in a row, and she would hand me an envelope every other week, and she would, we would ask me to put it in the offering. And what she was trying to do is build in me this idea of giving. Every other week, she would hand me this envelope that I had no clue was in there, and I would put it into the plate that was passed. So I was smart enough as a freshman to say, wait a minute here, something's not adding up. We don't have money for these shoes, but you keep giving these, this money to the church. Now I didn't know what was in the envelope. So I thought I'd bring it up to her. And so I said, Mom, why don't we just go one month without giving money to that church, and why don't we just buy myself some shoes so I can look cool? And I remember my mom, she, in very simplicity, she has a 10th grade education. She's not a brilliant woman, but she's a very godly woman. She looked at me, and I remember as a freshman her saying to me, Dave, let me tell you something, you would not be here today 
if it wasn't for the faithfulness of God taking the little we have and multiplying it for his use. In fact, I had someone pay my way to, to Christian high school. I had people pay my way to go to a Christian high school. And so I always had that grace of a faithful mom who believed in this idea of giving and believed that if you give, you can never outgive God. That God always blesses faithfulness. And so I want to talk this morning about this idea of giving. Now, before we go any further, I know when a preacher starts talking about giving, the church gets nervous. Gets nervous. It's like, because there's questions that come up, like, is there a dire need in our church and we need some money? No, 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 there's nothing. Our church is absolutely healthy. Uh, we just celebrate our year in review. God is doing some amazing things. We come and ask for things to serve our community and world, and, and every time our church is faithful to answer the call in amazing ways, and we know that. But here's what I also know. I also know that Jesus said, where your treasure is there will your heart be also. And so, so we do well at times to kind of take a mirror and look into our hearts to say, why do we really give? And if we're not giving, why aren't we giving? Why aren't we giving to what God is doing around the world? Why aren't we a part of God's cause? Now, I have to confess, this is not the type of sermon you want to come back in on. But this is what we want to talk about, to commit to giving. Now, this makes everybody uncomfortable. In fact, there are some t statistics taken about how this makes us uncomfortable. In fact, listen to some of these. 32% of people would rather go to the BMV than work through a financial plan. True story. Another study showed that 20% would rather spend an hour in jail than hear a sermon on giving. 34% would rather share an embarrassing photo of themselves on social media than take a screenshot of their account balances. Probably true, probably more than 34%. This one is eye-opening. 17% of people say they would rather leave their significant other than change their bank. True. 17% said, I'd rather change my significant other than to change my bank. No wonder we have issues in our country. One of the reasons why this conversation is so uncomfortable is because there are some misconceptions we have about giving, specifically as it relates to Christians. One of the misconceptions is really related to our wealth. Almost all of us here this morning would probably not raise our hand and say we're rich. Right, if I were to ask how many of you think you're rich, probably very few of us would raise our hand. And if you did, you would slightly raise your hand because of the fear of pride. Very few of us would say we're rich. But you know what's reality? According to the globalrichless.com, and they do a, kind of a, a, a national, worldwide look at what people make and how it compares to the rest of the world. If you make $20,000 a year in your household, that means husband, wife, together, income together, whatever it is, your full household income. If you make $20,000 a year. By the way, that's poverty line here in Mansfield. That's below the poverty line almost in many places. $20,000 a year. You are in the top 3.65% of wage earners in the entire world. If you make $32,000, which by the way, $32,000 is a median income of a household in Mansfield, Ohio. $32,000 a year. You're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Think about that. $32,000 a year in your household, you're in the top 1% of givers in, or, or receivers of wage earners in the entire world. See, the reason why this is so uncomfortable is because there's a misconception about wealth. And can I tell you, the Bible understands this misconception. Do you realize that over 2,100 verses in the Bible mention giving, stewardship, or possessions, or money? 2,100 verses. Now let me put that in perspective. There are 500 verses on love in the Bible. 
Now, think about that. You would think love is the theme of the Bible. But we find that giving money is actually three times the amount of love mentioned. Or how about prayer? Do you realize prayer is mentioned about 700 times in the Bible? 700 times prayer is mentioned. That means that, that over three times, over four times the amount, money, finances, stewardship is mentioned over prayer. You know why? Because the Bible knows. You're actually not able to love if you don't have a heart willing to give. The Bible realizes that if you're distracted with stuff, you're probably not going to spend time in prayer, right? So the Bible reveals this to us. In fact, Jesus himself, of the 38 parables that he shared, 19 of them had to deal with money, finances, and income. 19 of them, of stewardship, out of the 38. The, the focus in the Bible is on this thing that holds us captive. You know why? Because when you, when you begin to get a lot, a lot can begin to have you. Right? When we begin to have a lot, all of a sudden the a lot begins to have us. And so the scripture talks about this over and over again. I want to look at one of those examples here in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, we see an example of a parable that references this idea of stewardship of our finances. Now, just to be, give a little background, Luke chapter 16 follows Luke chapter 15. And Luke chapter 15 has one of the most well-known parables in all of the Bible. Remember at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders have gathered around Jesus, and they ask a question. They said, Jesus, how is it that you eat with sinners? Why do you eat with sinners, with people that seem to be unclean, that people that seem to be messed up? And so Jesus responds with a, a set of stories, parables, that are found in a set of three. The first one is a lost, the lost sheep. The second one is a lost coin. And the third one is the one we call the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son was that a son was given his inheritance, actually went to his father and said, give me, his give me my inheritance, which in the first century was an indication of saying, Dad, why don't you, you're just dead to me. Give me my inheritance, I want to go live it up. He goes and lives up the inheritance his father has given to him, and he finds himself after squandering all the money, money eating with pigs in the trough. And so he has a thought as he's eating with pigs. He says, you know what? I would be better off served going back to my father and being one of his servants. I, I can't be his son. I basically called him dead, and so I'm going to go back and just ask, can I be a servant? Well, what happens? He goes back home, and Jesus tells a story that his father's arms are out wide waiting for him, and, and, the, and the father's out looking for him, in fact, and it says he welcomes him home, he kills the fatted calf, he throws a party, and it says this, Jesus kind of reprises the theme, which is that heaven rejoices when a sinner comes to repentance, that heaven rejoices when someone who is lost is found. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus understands if we just read Luke 15, we could imply that God is the Father willing to offer grace to us at any moment. And so the human idea would be, well, then why don't I just go live it up? I mean, if I get God's grace at any moment, just go do whatever I want because grace will be available tomorrow. His mercy will be available tomorrow. There will still be God there tomorrow. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus balances Luke 15 with a parable in Luke 16, he begins to turn to his disciples while the Pharisees and religious leaders are eavesdropping, and he shares with them this story about stewardship because he knows our hearts. Take a look with me, Luke chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 1. It says, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking away the management from me? I'm no, not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. 
I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He, he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus summarizes, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There is a misconception of wealth, but also a misconception of ownership. See, as Jesus shared this parable, every listener would have thought, wait a minute here. We have possessions. We are owners. And Jesus flips the script and says, actually, the inheritance isn't actually, it's yours, but it doesn't belong to you. Like, someone gave it to you. So he's using this parallel of the particle son, and he says, I want you to realize this idea of stewardship. See, the reason why in the church world conversations about finances and money is so awkward is because we have a misconception of, of ownership. See, if you and I own everything, then this is awkward. Like, this is awkward to talk about it. But if we understand what Jesus brings up in this parable, it changes everything. It makes sense. It's a window to our hearts. And so I want to show you a couple points that relate to this. Number one, God owns everything. God owns everything. To prove that we don't actually believe this, one of the common questions we have about giving is, is actually two questions. One, people ask, well, how much money does God expect me to give? And secondly, how much money does God expect me to have? Now, what's the focal point of each of those questions? It's taken from the perspective that I own it. Well, how much money should I give to God? I own it, what do I give? And how much money does God want me to keep and have and use? It's my money. Both of those come from a selfish perspective, but the Bible reveals that God owns everything. Over and over again, we see this throughout the scripture. Take, take Psalm 24, it says, the earth, earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. By the way, I love that. A thousand is the largest number in the Hebrew. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. I own it all. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it talks about our own jobs and wealth. It says, beware lest your heart say to you, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Think about that. You and I cannot even say, well, wait a minute, God, I worked hard for this money. God says in Deuteronomy, no, no, no. God gave you the power to work hard for the money, so even the power to get the money came from God himself. God owns everything. God's, God owns everything. That, you know what that means? This, this should free us this morning. This, free, this frees me. That means if God owns everything, God doesn't need our money. God isn't up there saying, you know, I just, I just I need more money. 
Those people down there need to give me more. See, God is not, not in unstable in his ways. He owns it all. He knows what we have. It's all given by him in the first place. And so this isn't awkward because God isn't after our money. What God is after is our hearts. God is after the window that money reveals, and that is where our faith really is. And so if I get that, this isn't an uncomfortable conversation at all. Secondly, the story tells us there's an owner, but there's also a steward. We are not owners, we are stewards. We are stewards, on was point two, we are stewards, not owners. Notice the story, verse one. There was a rich man who had a manager, so this owner now had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So the implication that Jesus makes is that we are actually the stewards. God is the owner, we are the stewards. Now I love this word steward in this text. The, the, the word steward here is the word oikonomon. It's where we get our word economy from. The idea of we are the manager, we are, we are the economic engine that fuels God's cause. We are what brings about God's purpose on the earth. We, we are the economy of God, and in him giving it to us, we then are responsible to, to take that economy and make good out of it. That's the picture. We are the, the manager of the household, so to speak, and that means we're accountable for what we've been given. Now, in the story, that leads to the third point. That is this. What we do with money and possessions proves who we truly serve. Take a look at what happens in the story. Notice verse 2. It says, And the owner called out to the steward and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? By the way, the word here is in the, is in the present active, meaning it's a continual aspect. I keep hearing this about you. I keep hearing this about you. Now, what's funny is you and I would pass over this verse and probably think nothing of it. But here's what's interesting about this. For the question to come from the owner to say to the steward, what is this I hear about you is actually the opposite of what a steward should do. What do I mean? Well, a steward doesn't get any credit for what they've been given. The steward is just helping the money that the owner has. So the, the owner gets all the credit. The steward isn't even mentioned. But what happens? The owner goes to the steward and says, what does I keep hearing about you? Like, you're the topic of this, this conversation that keeps coming up, and it's not even yours. You're a steward of it. Like, this isn't really, you're not the subject of, the, uh, of this money. You are just an object that I'm using to fulfill what I believe I need to fulfill. And so he questions. And by the way, notice it says in verse 1, he was wasting the owner's possessions. He was wasting them. Now, again, I, I love the words here because they're powerful and our English doesn't do it justice. The word, the word, the word uh, wasting here is, is a really cool word. In Greek, it's the word diaskorpizo. It means to scatter abroad kind of sounds like torpedo. That's a way to remember it. Diascorpizo. And it, it has this idea of being dispersed, of being squandered. It's the idea that this steward wasn't focused in his giving. He wasn't focused in his stewardship. Instead, his purpose was scattered in what he was doing. He, he was trying to, trying to advance the money in, in ways that was never going to bring a return. It was scattered across too many places. By the way, this is true of investments, is it not? Now, now for most of us, we hear that and I don't know about you, I hear that and I think, well, and I, of course I've got to scatter it, right? I've got a house and I've got a car and I've got, I got kids in college now. I've got, you know, food that you've got to put on the table. And I've just learned the last few weeks of bills from hospitals and doctors and how much they are. Like, I'm scattering money, not in any places I want to scatter them, right? All these things go. And most of us would probably think, we're not wasting anything. I mean, we live pretty simply. We're not trying to be extravagant. Right? We're trying to live within the means. But the truth of it is, 
if we really got honest with ourselves, we waste money constantly. In fact, I want to share some funny ways we waste money. Uh, according to the research organization Tower Group, it, it, it's cited that approximately $2 billion worth of gift cards go unredeemed every single year. $2 billion worth of gift cards go unredeemed every year. In fact, we, we waste money. American South spent $110 billion annually on fast food. That's $3,650 per year on fast food per person. And those Big Macs are good, let's be honest. In fact, we go forward, we waste a lot of money as well. I don't know if you know this or not. We waste roughly uh, food that is $1,020 worth of food per person per year that is wasted. Let me put that in perspective in America. We could fill 730 pro football stadiums to the ceiling, to the top. 730 pro football stadiums could be filled to the top with the food that we waste in our culture. So we are a waste for culture. Uh, according to bankrate.com, they found that people, when they use their credit card, spend an average of 50% more than when they use cash. You go to the store and you got the card, well, just put more on. Just Yeah, let's get that too. Just swipe it. How, how about parents? Parents, statistics find that we spend about 3000 per year per child on sports. $3,000 per year per child on sports. In fact, st studies will show that 20% of those parents will spend